You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies. Today we have someone who has captured the hearts of Van Halen fans across the world, and he's not a member of the band yet. Professor Greg Renoff, he wrote a book, which if you are a fan of music in the 70s, let alone Van Halen, I suggest, strongly suggest you purchase. It is called Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And we are doing this podcast in February, and it is going to post on February 10th, 2020 which just happens to be the 42nd anniversary of the release of Van Halen 1. Professor Renoff, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. That is a a, a big uh, date. I hadn't thought about that, actually. And yeah, February, it's coming up. comes up every year, but it is coming up. Yeah, we're coming up on the anniversary of the release of Van Halen 1, which is... Uh, which is a, uh, as you are alluding to, a landmark release in rock history, and obviously where everything started for Van Halen. And so, I appreciate you having me on, and looking forward to talking about the book and anything else uh, related to Van Halen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we should mention that uh, Dr. Renoff has a PhD in history, which, of course, is for anyone who's listened to the Leaders and Legends podcast, means he's one of my favorite people already. Although the black mark is he is a Jets fan. And that's my condolences. It's been, a, it's been a lot of years of misery. So, yes, it's been a lot more fun being a Van Halen fan than it has being a Jets fan uh, most of the time. Well, on, on my podcast, as we were discussing via email, um, I want to try to interview more authors and try to do things that, even though it's an Indianapolis or an Indiana-based podcast, that we're, we're talking about kind of bigger issues and, and more fun issues keeping a local flavor but talking to people like you and when I mentioned that I was chatting you someone says well what's the connection to Indiana and I said well uh, first off uh, David Lee Roth was born in Bloomington mm-hmm. and I said uh, secondly uh, a great friend of mine an east side legend named Casey Branham is actually a business partner of Valerie Bertinelli through what's called Carla's Pasta and so, you know, we stretch and spin as much as possible here on the podcast. So for anyone who's listening who wonder what's the connection is to Indiana, there you go. Um, Dr. Well, and not to mention that Van Halen, of course, uh, played uh, Indianapolis many, many, many times during its, uh, during its uh, early years, particularly Market Square Arena and then other, other venues. And I uh, uh, played it at, at Notre Dame, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at some point around 1979, 1980. So there's, a, there's even more there so yes it's a we've got we've got a lot of uh, ground to cover well uh, my great friend jenny kalina uh actually went on ebay and bought me a, a an authentic 
Van Halen 2 concert ticket from Market Square Arena here in Indianapolis. Uh, it's been destroyed, but uh, it's famous for the fact that Elvis's last concert was there. Right. That's uh, right. And then, of course, they played, in, uh, they played in Evansville as well in 1984. So, yeah, there's a... Uh, there's a lot of Van Halen to talk about when it comes to Indiana. <laughs> well, and I'm lucky enough that she's very good friends with one of Eddie Van Halen's close friends, and she got it autographed and a piece of paper autographed for me from him. And so we're practically oh, that's BF- really cool. We're practically BFF. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So you wrote this book called Van Halen Rising, and my rock history knowledge is is I'd give it a B or B minus depending on the band. But is it fair to say that Van Halen's career, before they hit it big, is the stuff of legends in rock music, especially California rock scene? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what I would say to that is that one of my big motivations when I started to research what became this book was that I realized that the band had this long prehistory that was quite, quite, uh, quite wild. And, you know, there are certain bands who don't spend a long time without a record deal gigging or didn't spend a lot of time. And there, there are other bands who were out there for quite a while. I mean, the East coast example, um, many people who listened to this may have seen the uh, twisted sister documentary, which is on Netflix and Amazon a couple of years ago. I think it's still on and it's really quite excellent. But Twisted Sister was a band that was on Long, uh, from Long Island and actually had a similar type of of uh, history where they played clubs and bars and discos and theaters eventually without a record deal for a long time. Um, and Van Halen was was a group that got started really kind of in earnest in 1973 when David Lee Roth joins. But the brothers, the Van Halen brothers, had their own band, which was called... Um, Mammoth and uh, Genesis at different times in their history, and they were a, a trio, three guys that eventually Roth joined. And so when I looked at the early days of Van Halen and in my book, Van Halen Rising, I, I was able to go back really to the, to, the, to the 1960s to sort of track their very, very early days of the brothers becoming musicians and David Lee Roth taking up an interest in becoming a singer. But um, by 1970, the Van Halen brothers, who are teenagers, really 15, 16 years old, are playing... You know, youth youth dances. They're playing backyard mixers, and eventually the band gets bigger and bigger, and they they end up um, playing uh, much bigger backyards with lots more people, and eventually nightclubs and and so on. So yeah, it's I, you know I think it was one of when I really started to research it and really got into the um, the process enough where I could kind of lay out the band's history and see their their path from total and and an enemy in Pasadena up through the record deal. Um, there was a lot of, uh, chapters and episodes and a lot of events that I thought were quite remarkable that had not really been, been, uh, discussed at all in any detail in any other book or any other look at the band documentary, whatever it was. And so, yeah, I was excited. And I think it is sort of a, a legendary story of perseverance and all the other pieces of that puzzle, which we can talk about, about how those guys joined with David Lee Roth and, um, were able to get a record deal despite the odds being against them getting one. In California, it's fair to say in the in the mid, early mid late seventies, I guess covers the whole decade. Was the uh, is it fair to call it the epicenter of American rock? 
with the Eagles. Yeah, I mean, and it certainly Mac. was. Yeah, and it certainly was the was kind of the epicenter. I mean, I guess you could you could uh, make a, a you know a case for New York, but really, it was the place in the country where the for the music industry for sure. And so um, you have this huge city in Los Angeles with um, hundreds, literally hundreds of nightclubs to play across the city. Um, you know, there are, there are everything from obviously stadiums to uh, basketball arenas, big for big big acts would play to which you know basically hole in the wall places where bands could play and so there was a, a really a quite a, a big thriving music scene in los angeles of unsigned bands um bands that wouldn't have record deals but would play five sets a night in a in a club for people to sit around um dance and drink beer watch bands to um you know to to even even many you know concert halls that would would be have kind of been long been forgotten. One of them was called the Golden West Ballroom. It's actually now an evangelical church. It's in Norwalk, California. <laughs> it was a it was an old it was actually an old um, big band dance hall, big wooden floor, had a stage that had kind of fallen on hard times. Obviously, by the 1960s and 70s, and somebody had the, the bright idea to go, oh, we can get rock bands in there, and uh, local promoters signed um, signed on mostly bands like Van Halen that were that had followings from teenagers in Los Angeles but didn't have record deals and eventually was able to kind of bring in more signed acts. But, you know, this is a place that wouldn't have been on the radar of anyone outside of Los Angeles. And so um, I would say in terms of an epicenter, it really was a place where you had a whole network of, of people who were, quote-unquote, trying to make it in the industry. And you could have a career as a musician and make money even if you didn't have a record deal and that was true in a lot of cities but i think that the for me the real remarkable piece of that of course is that you had capital records warner brothers records Elektra right. records all these big huge labels all based out of los angeles and so you had the uh their presence kind of overseeing everything in the city in a way that you know if you were a musician in chicago you probably wouldn't have had the same access to so many labels being right right reason right down the street from where you would be playing in Hollywood. And what were some of the other acts that came out of California that time period? A lot of them, I think Rain, wasn't Randy Rhodes active there and maybe Rat Motley Crue sure, yeah. I'm trying to so, think. So those bands the, the um the, the you know the, the the wave of bands that really came out of uh, Los Angeles in the late to early 80s were the ones who were really actually all inspired by Van Halen, which is a whole other, I think, really interesting piece of the story there, which is that, so a band like Quiet Riot was around when mm -hmm. Van Halen didn't have a record deal, and then right around the time they get signed, that was with a, right, with a guitarist, Randy Rhodes, who went on to uh, great success with Ozzy Osbourne before right. being tragically killed in a plane crash. Um, but there were a lot of other, other bands like uh, that, anyone who was a fan of, of uh, MTV, Hard Rock, would remember bands like and bands like Rad, as you mentioned. These groups would have been um, groups that would have just been starting or getting together as Van Halen already had a record deal. So 79, 78, 80, these groups would have been, in one form formulation or another, kind of putting together their, um, their, uh, their groups um, and oftentimes struggled to get a record deal because the interesting thing was that in... 1979, 1980, really, um, it wasn't it wasn't a great local scene for hard rock in Los Angeles. New wave and quote unquote punk music would have been much more popular in Los right. Angeles. Um, you know, and that really even started before Van, as I mentioned, Van Halen Rising. Even before 
Van Halen got their deal, or around the time they got their deal in 1977, Punk and New Wave had arrived in Los Angeles from the UK, and the Whiskey, which had recently reopened, was hosting groups like Blondie, Devo, the Ramones, um, you know, other acts like Tom Petty as well, who would have been more mainstream rock, but there really was this sort of the center line of the music that came through Los Angeles and played clubs like the Starwood Club and the Whiskey, which would have been uh, places that really catered mostly to uh, professional acts, that bands that, you know, acts that had record deals would have been punk and new wave groups. And so a group like Van Halen, as I really tried to emphasize in the book, was definitely out of step with that because there are, there are four of them guitar-driven hard rock with uh, the powerful lead singer and the, um, the guitar hero, more more than not, in the eyes of most people in the industry, would have been seen as something that had been um, peaked much earlier. You know, peaked in 1974, 73, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, these types of groups had kind of peaked, and it was now kind of time for um, these other more um, what would I would say a, a unique new groups with this new sound. Was was good, roughly seemed to be like the jam, and these other groups out of the UK seemed like to be the wave, Sex Pistols' wave of the future for the music scene, uh, much more than a band like Van Halen, which seemed to have their foot in the past more than in the future. And when when Roth and Michael Anthony joined the Van Halen brothers, how much did that change the band? You, you know, despite and we can talk about this in a little bit, but the friction that seems to exi- existed from day one between Roth and his guitar player. Um, I've read many times where Eddie Van Halen gave Roth credit for his eclectic ch- taste in music. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to go see him, not the last time here in Indianapolis, the, but the time before, so for a different kind of truth tour, not the mm-hmm. live album tour, their opening act was cool in the gang. Everybody loved him. Everybody in the audience was having fun and, you know, dancing as best we can do. And uh, Roth really did like all sorts of music, and he brought that to the band. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, yes, I totally agree. And I think the thing that's most interesting is that the Van Halen brothers really were enamored by guitar-driven hard rock. You know, they started with mm-hmm. really... Early on, this before that, they started with surf music and, you know, the monkeys and sort of when they were really, really young. But by the time they got to the late 60s and they'd sort of become real students of, of uh, their instruments, they were much more interested in bands like Cream, Mountain, Grand Funk, Black Sabbath, eventually Deep Purple. Those were the groups, the kind of the classic, mm-hmm. what at the time would have been called heavy metal groups. We would call, really call them hard rock, but heavy metal um, groups were the what the brothers liked playing, and they they really were masters of that style of music. When Roth joined Van Halen in 1973, he had come out of a really different musical tradition. He grew up uh, listening to, I mean, everything from sort of vaudeville, from what I understand, to um, old black R and B records. He loved James Brown. He loved uh, funk music from his experience of going to high school in a, a heavily, seg- a heavily, excuse me, heavily integrated high school, which is called John Muir High School. It's still there in, in uh, Pasadena. It was uh, that was a school that was um, 
more heavily black and minority, and Roth got bust in there during the time of forced busing. Mm. And so as this Jewish kid from the other side of the, of the tracks, he got sent to the school where he had a much richer uh, ethnic mix in terms of his fellow students and the Van Halen brothers. And so, you know, Roth was going to be walking around talking to people who were probably more likely to be watching Soul Train than listening to the local hard rock radio station in, in L.A. So... You know, when Roth joined Van Halen, he brought that much more eclectic musical taste to the band and tried to get those guys to do things like James Brown, um, Cold Sweat, which actually, uh, from what I understand, they did. They would start to do these different types of songs in part because what Roth pushed them to do was to start playing in nightclubs. So the brothers had been making a pretty good living before Roth joined playing parties, backyard parties. They didn't really play nightclubs. And so what that would entail was for, for people who don't quite follow, um, what that would entail would be that, uh, someone would say to the Van Halen brothers, Hey, we want to hire your band. We'll pay you $200 or a hundred dollars and say to play in our backyard. And, uh, the brothers would say, great. And the people would, uh, these would be teenagers. Their parents would be, let's say in, uh, Europe, they would uh, put up flyers around town or hand out flyers in high school to say, you know, $2, uh, for, you know, free beer, all the beer you can drink in Van Halen. They would buy five kegs, and they would make a killing. They'd pay Van Halen, they would, they would get drunk, and they would have a great time. But what Roth kind of realized was that was a, um, you know, basically you were just going to be uh, stuck doing that for the rest of your life. That was not really a, a lifetime musical goal to be able to just do these parties because you could make money as a 20-year-old. So Roth started to push them to want to go play nightclubs. Now, by playing nightclubs at the time, the typical requirement was to play five uh, 45-minute sets a night. So the band would play for 45 minutes, take a 15-minute break, go back and play for 45 minutes. And so as a result, you had to know quite a few songs. And you couldn't play um, Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin. You couldn't play like 20-minute long <laughs> jam songs. You had to play got a top, top 40. You had to play top 40, and so that was part of what Roth was, was able to do was to kind of, I think, you know, use his his um, his experience with uh, Motown and, you know, get them to, to think about doing uh, Wilson Pickett songs and get them to do stuff maybe that the brothers necessarily, didn't necessarily love, like the Kinks, which would have, been, would have been probably too straightforward of rock for the brothers, and to have them... Um, Join that into their repertoire to the point where they were supposedly learned as had new as many as 300 songs, um, two to 300 songs for sure. Um, by the time the, the band really became a, you know, a really going by 75, where they were really playing a lot of these types of clubs. Um, some of them were, some of them were biker bars. Some of them would have been nicer types of establishments, but that was the, that was the requirement. And in, in doing that, the, the strategy of most bands would be to try to slip in an original song or two during the course of the night. So you playing, a, um, you're playing a Bad Company song, and you're playing a Cool in the Gang song, or you're playing a, you know, I don't know, you're playing a Casey and the Sunshine Band song, and then you're hoping this, to slip in a Van Halen song that nobody knows, but that you can play for two or three minutes, and people will be like, I don't recognize that song, and they may not know it's it's not a, a hit song, but they just are sort of um, caught up in the moment, and you just let them keep dancing, and then you move on to another song that they would know. And so that was the that was the thing that Roth brought to the table to get those guys focused more on pop music, because that was what you needed to do to be able to play in nightclubs. To be honest with you, um, even even in you know biker bars, you had to play hit songs. You had to play um, 
you know, you play, you had to play Bad Company, you had to play Led Zeppelin, you had to play Aerosmith, you had to play stuff that people would know. You couldn't just sort of play your own originals, or you you couldn't play. Sure. As I said, you mentioned these song, these songs that would stretch out for long periods of time. You know, because people wanted to dance and drink. That was kind of the thing to do in the seventies. And I had read before before we move on that these backyard parties were they turned into like rallies. Like they had a thousand people there or hundreds of people showing up and they eventually got shut down by the police or whatever, but they, they weren't just like a backyard barbecue with 50 to 75, a hundred people. They became these monstrous, almost cultish legendary events that people still talked about after they made it big. You can still find people on, and that's interesting you bring that up because you can still find Pasadena locals on Facebook who will talk about these parties. They were, um, legendary there were you know there were some of course that were smaller and even after van halen had gotten kind of a bigger following in 74 or something like that you know sometimes a party would never really get going it wouldn't be publicized right and there wouldn't be that many people would show up or the police would come early and break it up but there were some that for different circumstances the backyards were extremely big the people throwing the parties as one of the families had told me or the brothers and sisters had told me about the party they threw is that they they just went bananas with the the flyers you know, the more flyers you, that was really how it, how it, how it worked was that the more flyers you printed, potentially the more people you would come and they went and actually to went to like multiple. So instead of just giving out flyers in Pasadena, they went to other towns and gave out flyers in parking lots of other high schools. And they ended up with a thousand people in the backyard. And the, um, the truth of the matter was these were probably parties that, in our day and age, could never happen. I mean, it would never, it would never happen. Uh, it was a time of, you know, where teen drinking was sort of winked at in some sort of ways. It was there was much more of a, uh, I, I think, a, a tolerance for by a lot of law enforcement for this type of stuff, where they would just sort of break these parties up and not necessarily arrest people. But what happened sure. in Pasadena was that as these as Van Halen developed more of a name in and around Pasadena in the San Gabriel Valley. Again, they don't have a record deal. The parties got bigger and bigger because people sort of go, oh, Van Halen parties are great. Van Halen parties are fun. And the the, the band was good, and the sense was that the parties were going to be good. And so eventually the police really started to crack down on these. And actually what happened in 1974 was that there was a party in a suburban suburban part of Pasadena, like a development basically, that the... Um, Temple City Sheriff's Department, I talk about this in the book, showed up in riot gear with the shields and the helmets and the batons out and actually tear gassed the kids, including <laughs> them out of the backyard. Um, just can, can you tear gas just, kids who are so high that they don't know the difference? <laughs> no, don't know. The, uh, from what I understand, uh, the, uh, the, the police came in with quite a bit of force. Today it would have been, of course, it would be just a, a complete outrage. But uh, the, uh, the the kids threw bottles at the police cars, from what I I learned, and that was that was it. That was it. It was a riot, and it was a quote unquote riot. And the riot police, you know, they came in, and and really the thing was, the, the police had had grown. The um, the law enforcement had just grown tired of these parties. They gotten bigger and bigger, and more and more resources had to be directed towards them. And I think it was just the, the whoever was in charge that night was just point, trying to quote, send a, send a message to say, these aren't okay anymore. We're just, we're not going to, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore. And after that, that was sort of the, the peak of the, um, 
at least for Van Halen, the era. At that point, they were sort of transitioning to be more of a nightclub act anyway. They would they would start to play clubs, uh, as we talked about earlier. But, yeah, there were some incredible-sized gatherings that, at least three, four, five of them, where there were in the neighborhood of a 1,000 people at them. And, yes, they were uh, parties that people still talk about today. You can find people on Facebook who, if you go into groups that are, you know, connected to Pasadena on Facebook and bring them up and there will be people who talk about them. It's just, you know, it was, they were remarkable, uh, events probably, you know, in part driven by the, the aftermath of Woodstock and these types of festivals where it was sort of seen as the thing to do. And it was, that was the way you could enjoy live music and it just, it sort of took on a life of its own. Let's pause for a second so that everyone who grew up in the seventies can reminisce in their own way and smile. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is Greg Renoff, Ph.D., who wrote a book called Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. And look for it. It's on all the usual spots online. Uh, Goodreads is a good place to take a, a, a look at what he's written because Professor Renoff uh, has some quotes that's, that's on that website that I think will entice you to buy the book. If you're a fan of Van Halen, if you're a fan of music, of Americana in the 70s, then please pick up this book. Uh, one of the things that seems to be a common thread of assertions is that when it came to the clubs and it came to their early years and maybe throughout their history, David Lee Roth was the show, but Eddie Van Halen stole the show. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting is that they were, in some ways, so different in the way they approached the stage. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, still to this day, even after having played in front of millions of people, is still a, I would even call him a bit reclusive in terms of a person. He's not a person who's going to want to go out and go to the Grammys He's not a person who's going to want to show up for interviews on TV. He's just he's not a person who enjoys sort of the celebrity side of being a rock star, or even I think would even would probably enjoy being called a rock star. I think he'd probably prefer to be called a musician. And so you had this uh, a virtuoso guitar player who was to anyone who really watched him play, they could really see even before his style sort of took on full bloom. Um, by the uh, right time, by the time the band got a record deal, that was a remarkable talent. And then you had someone like David Lee Roth, who was clearly born or had been, had developed a personality in terms of his uh, his upbringing that made him absolutely adore being on the, the spotlight. And so they were on and off stage in terms of their approach to the media, interacting with fans, all these different things, very very different. And yet when they got on stage, they were both able to kind of marry their their talents. Roth was hired by the Van Halen brothers in 1973, in part because Eddie Van Halen 
had been the lead singer of the group. Uh, the, That's right. Of the group the Van, the Van Halen's had for more than a couple of years and was not a particularly good singer. He could sort of get his way through the songs. But the other reality was he was not a magnetic frontman. He was not somebody who was going to be able to get up there and draw eyes to the stage by his his um, ability to grab the, the attention of the audience. He didn't have great stage presence. And so they got Roth in part because he could he could draw that attention. And even if they thought the brothers, even at the time, thought he wasn't the greatest singer in the world, they thought they needed someone like Roth to be able to make the band work better. And that's how Roth ended up getting, getting the gig. But yes, there were... Uh, and there, there were friends so, of the Van Halen's, right? Who who told? Forgive me, but there were friends of the Van Halen brothers who said, "Like, what are you doing? Why are you hiring this guy?" And and what I've read is Eddie kind of stuck up for him and said, "Look, give him a chance. He's a good guy, and we need someone like this." Yeah, I mean that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, when I interviewed guys who were in the circle with the Van Halen's, who grew up with those guys, you know, a lot of them were were musicians too. They weren't anywhere near as good at the Van Halen's, but guys who played guitar and sort of would hang out with them. There was a sense that David Lee Roth was, uh, you know, he just wasn't talented in terms of his vocal ability. And so if you can imagine at the time that the the kind of the classic rock singers, the Robert Plants, the uh, uh, Ian Gillens from Deep Purple, these types of people, we go down Rogers. the whole line, Peter Frampton, and go down the line of the guys who were kind of the, the, the singers of the time, all could sing. And then you had someone like Roth who sort of warbled his way through songs. And he looked great. He could throw his, he could throw, uh, his charisma around on stage and really get people interested in the, in the performance, but he was not a guy who you're going to go, wow, that guy really is a talented uh, vocalist. And so there was a sense like, what, like, what are you doing hiring this guy? He can't really sing that well, but they're the brothers, I think particularly Alex kind of understood intuitively that this is what they needed. If they were going to be able to just sustain themselves because it wasn't having Eddie as a lead singer wasn't sustainable for the long term. Uh, you know, mostly because he could, he couldn't sing either. So that's the, I mean, that's always the the ironic thing is they got a guy who supposedly the brothers didn't think could sing that all that well, but uh, Eddie couldn't sing that well either. So and was Anthony were, was Michael Anthony the last person to join? Cor- yeah, correct. He would have been the last. He would have been the last person to join that. And that happened in uh, the summer of 1974, and that became the uh, the classic lineup for Van Halen. So they wouldn't actually released their first records we talk about until 1978 so they were together for about three plus three almost four years uh with michael anthony before they ended up uh putting their first record out you mentioned earlier about disco and punk and new wave and all that it reminds me of the remember in the us festival when the clash played and they were putting down the united states and just generally acting like jerks and and Van Halen, who was famously paid $1.5 million, I believe, mm-hmm. for a single night performance in 1982 when Roth was on stage and he took a big swig of Jack Daniels and he said, this is real whiskey here. The only people who put iced tea in Jack Daniels bottles is The Clash. Way to stick up for America there, Dave. <laughs> exactly. But all, exactly. These, all these musical... Uh, movements new are happening is it fair to say or is it overstating it that for van halen to be discovered and actually get a record deal after years of trying and and not necessarily succeeding and i want to ask you specifically about the gene simmons demo sure but is it fair to say that van halen being discovered and signed was a bit of a fluke 
Just luck? Well, I mean, they happened well, to come yeah, in? Well, I mean, yeah. Go ahead. I, I think it was, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. Yeah, I think it was It was a bit fluky. I, I'll, I'll say this. So we can kind of circle into the into the Gene Simmons conversation here because I think that all fits together. The, the you know, by the time Van Halen arrived on uh, the Sunset Strip, by the summer of 76, they had started playing a place called the Starwood, which is always on Santa, Santa Monica Boulevard. It's no longer there. There's a little shopping center there. It was a, it was a competitor of the Whiskey A Go-Go, and it was a place where big bands from around the country would come and play, but they also had where they, a couple nights a week where they would let unsigned bands like Van Halen and local bands play. And Van Halen played there for quite, um, quite a while, a few months, until eventually uh, Gene Simmons from KISS was sniffing around, this would have been in the fall of 1976, looking for a band to sign. The, the uh, Beatles had famously had a label called Apple Records, and that was the Beatles' Uh, record label where they could they could find bands like Badfinger and other groups that they liked and they would they would sign and put out records. So Kiss had the idea, at least Jim and Simmons had the idea to do the same the same thing, and he wanted to try to find local bands in Los Angeles to do this uh, with on his label to sign and to record. He found Van Halen in the start the Starwood Club in the fall September October nineteen I guess October nineteen seventy six. And he took them to New York. Uh, this would be at the time when Kiss was at the absolute peak of their fame. They would be playing stadiums all over the country. There would have been, uh, I don't think, enough, you know, two or three bands that would have been bigger than Kiss in the United States at the time. And my brother was uh, a member and, of the Kiss Army. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they were, you know, it were they were absolutely huge. And the the long story short there was that uh, Kiss Kiss's manager, Bill Coyne, who would have been the guy who would have had to approve the deal for this record label that Kiss was hoping to put together, didn't like David Lee Roth as a singer, wasn't crazy about the Van Halen band, and passed on them. And so after that ends up happening, there was a so uh, the band comes back from New York City where they had gone to audition for Kiss's manager, and they kind of come back with their tail between their legs. There was sort of a sense that the Los Angeles scene that Van Halen had had their chance. I mean, you can imagine sure. when the word starts to get whispered around that, uh, well, Gene Simmons can't get you a record deal, that's probably, you know, not a good sign if you're a, if you're a band. I mean, it'd be like if um, you know if Jack White wanted to get me a record deal. He thinks I'm a really talented singer songwriter, and then it turns out that oh yeah, Jack White can't get you a record deal, or <laughs> Elton John can't get you. I mean, you pick whoever you want, right? Elton John can't get you a record deal. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and did Van Halen come? A, did they come close that, to quitting at any point? Where they just like, look, it's just not going to happen for us, and we're going to go on to something else, whatever that would have been. Know, from what I interviewed uh, the guy, one of their David Lee Roth's friends who picked them up at the airport, and they were pretty. De- I mean, the brothers particularly were pretty despondent, as you can imagine. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a you know, it's like congratulations, you've got the tickets to Disneyland, and you know, you get there and suddenly you realize it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to ride the roller coaster, and in fact, it's it's uh, it's not what you expected at all. And that's kind of what happened to those guys. They had this, I'm sure, thinking that oh, it's going to happen because Gene said it's going to happen. And then it didn't happen. So when they get back to Los Angeles, there's sort of a sense that, yeah, you know, Van Halen is kind of, you know, maybe there is nothing really there if Gene Simmons can't get your deal. And that's where the story of Ted Templeman, the record producer, who gets a tip about this band called Van Halen, Ted being a guy who uh, is a vice president at Warner Brothers at the time, right up the street, you know, working right down the street in Burbank 
he's he's in his Hollywood all the time recording at Sunset Sound, but has never heard of Van Halen. He gets this tip, and he agrees to go to the Starwood nightclub to see Van Halen play, and ends up signing them. And so it was him Van and the Halen, president of Warner Brothers, uh, Mo Austin. They went there on a night. It was a thunderstorm, right? And there was hardly anyone there. And they, correct, they, it was they, right. There was there was a uh, very very few people there. It was a Monday and a Tuesday night. And it was a, a, you know, kind of an under, I, I would say it was a, definitely a, as confident those guys may have been that they were eventually going to get a record deal. I think the way it happened had to be pretty shocking to them that suddenly Ted Templeman walks in and again, next night he brings Mo Austin, who's the, the uh, chairman CEO of Warner Brothers Records in and they signed, they basically, you know, signed a preliminary deal on the spot to, to get those guys on Warner Brothers. It was a pretty remarkable turnaround. So for that for that to happen in the wake of the Gene Simmons things was pretty amazing because there were other labels and other record companies who had, had sort of seen Van Halen at this point. Um, Bob Ezrin being one, you know, the producer Bob Ezrin of Pink Floyd fame had gotten a tip of Van Halen and he was sort of not interested. And you go down the line, there's a number of examples of the book of other labels who sort of just just said, you know what, this isn't for us. I mean, we 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 want to sign the next Sex Pistols. We want That's to sign right. the next group like that. We want to sign the next Jam, the next Blondie, or the Ramones. These are the groups that seem to be the wave of the future. And so a band like Van Halen didn't seem that exciting to them. And especially after things didn't work out with Gene, that was, I think, a big a big black mark against Van Halen because there had to be something wrong. And what was wrong in the eyes of Kiss's manager, to be frank, was that they... The, the manager didn't like Roth as a vocalist. Uh, the, That's right. That was one one problem. It wasn't probably the only problem with um, with the audition that those guys had, but that was one at least one problem. And so, well, let's here we talk, go there. Let's talk just a little quick because I want to make sure we talk about your new book that's going to come out uh, about Ted Templeman. But for those who are listening who who have never heard the name or don't have a frame of reference per se, Ted, sure. Ted Templeman was certainly in the top top echelon of record producers at the time he had worked with carly simon the doobie brothers montrose uh, van mm-hmm. morrison uh, so when ted templeman says this band's really good and we need to sign them that's just as powerful within the industry would you say than if gene simmons says this band's really good we should sign them I'd say, I'd say yes and no. I mean, I think the thing was that the fact that Ted in 1977 had a track record with the Doobie Brothers, with with Little Feet, with all these other groups he had had success with, that allowed him to get the deal done pretty quickly at Warner Brothers because you could say, okay, Ted's, Ted has proven he knows how to uh, find new, you know, if he discovered the Doobie Brothers, he had the, at that point the track record to say he knows how to cultivate talent, how to get groups together and get their records sounding good and get those uh, bands on the charts. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you have to consider in the context of what that band was expected to sell. Uh, there was a band that had been, you mentioned uh, called Montrose, which had come out in 1974. It was a record that had uh, Ronnie Montrose on guitar and Sammy Hagar on lead vocals, and there was a classic hard rock quartet, great sounding songs, really, really good record, and it didn't sell a lick, really. 
it, it didn't go gold until something like a decade later after it was released. And what I mean, it didn't. It never char- really charted that high. It never had its hit single. So it was one of those records, as someone said to me, like pretty much anyone who was a rock fan in the '70s owned. Uh, but it never really became a hit. Mm-hmm. And so when Van Halen was signed, Ted will tell you that there were a lot of people inside of Warner Brothers were like, well, this is nice. You know, maybe they'll sell a couple hundred thousand records or maybe we can, you know, maybe do a little better than Montrose. Uh, but there was never any sort of sense that it was almost like this is a group Ted likes. He's earned the right to take a shot with these guys. But the odds of this band becoming big are about zilch. This is, you know, we need more. We need the next Linda Ronstadt. We need to right. sign. We need the next, uh, you know, we need the next disco queen to sign. These are the types of things that people at the time would have been thinking that this is where we want to go with our resources. But uh, Ted liked the group. And so the fact that Ted liked them allowed them to get a record deal and allowed the record when it came out to, I think, have credibility. But I don't, I think if you talk to Ted, he would tell you that there weren't a tremendous number of people inside the halls of Warner Brothers who were going, oh yeah, this is a slam dunk. We're going to, sure. we're going to sell a million records and we're going to sell two million records. The, the whole, uh, to put a fine point on it, the whole punchline, which is by December, Van Halen has sold two million copies of their first record was pretty mind boggling to people inside of Warner Brothers. Uh, and it was actually a huge credit to Ted's, uh, abilities, but also of course the talent of Van Halen, but just to sort of have, Ted be able to pick those guys out, a band that seems to be swimming against the tides of what's popular, and for Ted to be able to get that in a place where the band can have four singles come out, tour the world, tour Black Sabbath to Japan, England, Europe, all over the United States, and end up with uh, you know a platinum, double platinum record. It was a pretty big, it was a pretty big accomplishment for for uh, for Ted and for Van Halen. I ran across this quote from a guy named Mike Kelly, who you may have probably encountered that name in your research. He was a guy who was described as a frequenter of the Sunset Strip era. So I'll read this quote and you tell me whether you agree with it or disagree. I can tell you that the buzz they generated, which eventually landed them their record deal, was attributable solely and completely to the virtuoso guitar talents of Eddie Van Halen. He inspired awe and excitement in everyone who saw him. Superstar was written all over Eddie. I think that there's a lot of truth to that statement, and I'll tell you why. I think that for a lot of people who saw the band Van Halen, they thought the real talent was the guitar player and that doesn't mean that Roth wasn't a good frontman but they again getting back to what we talked about in terms of the vocal ability and this is this was a time period where as I've already mentioned there were so many classic male singers you know Paul Rogers would be another one who really mm-hmm. comes to mind um, you know or even groups like Foreigner or Boston except about these groups who were going to start to break that there was you know there was a certain expectation of a, of a ability to sing and really sing and so like John Anderson, have, John Anderson of sure, Yes had exactly, this beautiful exactly. voice. So, so it didn't mean you couldn't you couldn't um, have a successful group with the, with us maybe a singer who wasn't the the greatest vocalist in the world. I mean, Ozzy Osbourne maybe would be a, would be, might even be one example of that live. He wasn't particularly wasn't particularly great singer, but the people who would have seen Van Halen 
would have certainly seen how talented the kid guitar player was in the songs and the songs were good as well. Um, you know, for, for people who would have been watching that group. Yeah. I mean, I think they, there would have been a sense that, yeah, this, this guy Roth has, has, a a magnetic stage presence and girls come to see him and they're, you know, he's, he's funny on stage and he's good with people. And that was really what Roth was. He was very good with, with crowds and with people, but really the musical talent, yeah, would have been Eddie Van Halen. So I do agree with that for sure. That would have been something that people would have been like, wow, if you're going to say something like what made you, your, you know, walk away going, wow, that was really cool. It would have been the guitar playing for sure. For sure. Is one of the things, there's a great, all people who love Van Halen have seen the three videos that were shot in the Oakland Coliseum, the fair warning tour where they play, uh, so this is love. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the? I know because uh, I want to get to Unchained. So this hear is about love. It later. You hear about it later in Unchained. Yep. There's a great yep. little snippet of video uh, in that uh, concert where Van Halen's playing, and the women in the audience are rocking out harder than the men. You see them, mm-hmm. you know, their head and they're laughing, and they're you know they this one scene where these one. Uh, concert goer she thrusts her fist in the air like yes they're playing this song or yes this is my band yeah uh, i got the sense through some of the things that i read that zeppelin and sabbath and some of those groups were were more geared toward men but what van halen did was brought the women and says you can rock just as hard as the men and mm-hmm. we want you here because the more beautiful women we can get to these shows the more men will get to the shows well I'll tell you for sure, you will hear from anybody who saw Van Halen in the backyards, was that Roth definitely increased their female their female <laughs> fandom. There's no question about it. Um, you know, just because he, he had the the ability to engage with them. He was, he was, he was, as someone said to me, I interviewed a book, he was great with people. I mean, just in general, but particularly he had uh, a certain certain sex appeal that women really, really went for. Which, you know, for if you're thinking about what the Van Halens were before Roth, it was three long-haired guys. This would have been they went with bassist Mark Stone, who was a who was their bassist before Michael Anthony, and they, these guys wore jeans and and flannel shirts and 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 sneakers. You know, there was no show. People say, you know, what was the show like? It was just a mus- musicianship. And so, while there were there were plenty of if you talk to some. Um, Women who grew up in that era, who would have been, you know, graduate high school in 71, 72, 73, they'll tell you they loved going to see, the, see them. But when Roth came, it was a different, it was a different sort of, um, the demographic started to shift more heavily towards women. And well, so that Sabbath, was definitely. Sabbath is, I mean, I, I do like Black Sabbath. They're a little bit before my time. I graduated in 86, but I have older uh, brothers and a sister who, you know, listen to that sort of music on endless eight track sure. loop. But, you know, they were kind of gloomy and, you know, dark. And, I mean, we've all seen the movie Spinal Tap. And uh, and here sure. comes Van Halen, who's like, you know, smile. Even Jimmy Page later on in the 80s had an interview, with, and he's asked about Van Halen. He says, I can't play like that, and I can't smile like that. Right. And right. so they did seem like they brought, and I want to ask this as part of your uh, title of your book, is they seem like they brought the smile back, the happy, the party back to rock and roll in the late seventies. Yeah, I'm, I, I think this goes back to the conversations we can have about Ted Templeman. Is that Ted Templeman 
talked to me quite a bit about when I read the, the Van Halen Rising book and this new book that's going to come out, which is going to be his authorized biography, which will be out in a couple months. Talked about how what he had had in mind with Montrose was he wanted a heavy metal band. He wanted to produce a heavy metal band with a bit of sense of humor. And what he meant by that was that if you think about the groups in the 70s, there was a lot of, you know, Alice Cooper, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath. They mm-hmm. were sort of, you know, they would write about topics that were more, you know, a little bit more uh, bleak, nuclear war, you know, um, you know, how school sucks, These the Alice Cooper and all these other things that were, were not really uh, light in terms of their their uh, view of life. And he thought that, he, he did think that with Montrose, that the, the stuff that Sammy Hagar was singing about was, had kind of an upbeat, upbeat attitude. And even though that didn't really work, and what, again, what Ted was trying to say was he wanted more of a pop. I don't think he would have called it that at the time. I know he wouldn't have, but it's, he meant he more like a, like a, like a, a pop metal, but with more of a, a lighthearted look at the, at subject matter, more fun, you know, just sort of like carefree approach to life rather than going, Oh, we're all going to die from a nuclear bomb. So, you know, like, why, <laughs> why not, you know, why not just be uh, depressed? So, you know, when Van Halen came along and came into Ted's radar, he had the same type of thing. He thought, oh, you know, we have this guy, David Lee Roth, who has this great sense of humor, this ebullient personality, and these guys all are are nice guys and are not like, you know, they're not um, your classic, quote-unquote, heavy metal musicians in that sort of way. They had, they had a great sense of humor, and they were really know how to have fun. So that's for sure. And you said about the smiles. I mean, that was the thing, right? These other bands who uh, toured with Van Halen, you know, there wasn't a lot of smiling when Black Sabbath performed, but, you know, the Van Halen band was, as you said, a, a different a different take on life, much more... Uh, very California. Very, yes, California, uh, right. Black Sabbath, I recall, most of them were, like, from Birmingham, England, and which is kind of a working class, you know, coal mining sort of town. And, sure. You know, I mean, the Van Halens and Michael Anthony and David Lee Roth basically are, you know, lived with the same where the Brady Bunch lived, right? Right. It's always sunny exactly. and everyone's happy. Uh when you talk about the, I want to ask you about the record. Uh, Van Halen won. True or false, the greatest debut album of all time. <laughs> it's hard. I'll tell you. It, I I would probably say, it, I, I'm going to say false because there are so many other ones that I would have to like go through them more scientifically with you. I mean, it's <laughs> it's up there. It's up there in the top the top ten for sure. Um, you know, we could kind of we could go through Led Zeppelin, know, Led Zeppelin and we go through Guns N' Roses and Boston. I mean, it's, it gets to be a difficult thing to say that, but you know, you in terms of Jimmy the seventies, mm-hmm. in terms of hard rock, it's it is an absolute landmark. It's it's almost hard to explain when you put it on how it doesn't sound of the time, which is really really. I mean, even the Led Zeppelin debut record really sounds of the time. I think it still sounds, you know, it sounds like 1970. Um, you know, the Guns N' Roses record, maybe less so. It doesn't sound as 80s as some of the other, you know, it's kind of hard to place it. And it's more like the Van Halen record. I think the Boston records definitely sounds like the 70s. But when I put the Van Halen record on, I don't think it sounds like 1977. And so there's sort of a timeless character to it. And it's an absolute classic from front to back and that's the you know the in some ways the ultimate cliche to say that but really it's it's so strong every single song from beginning to end it's a it is something that really 
will be, you know, I'm sure listened to to one degree or another 100 years from now. It's just, it's one of those records that's going to transcend, transcend the century for sure. And it's, uh, it's one that just, to me, you can go back to over and over again and just kind of hear, at least I can hear, all the hard work those guys put in to get that good and that tight together from all those years of playing. This wasn't a group that was just thrown together, you know, a month before they went on, uh, you know, did a, got a record deal. They had years and years of playing together, and that really comes through on the grooves of that record. I watched an interview with Ted Templeton on YouTube where he, one of the things, and it may have been where you were with him at the launch party. You guys were Probably, together. yeah. It, but it could have been one of the documentaries that I, that I watched from time to time where he talks about one of the reasons why, and correct me if my memory is failing me, but one of the reasons why he was so intent on signing Van Halen, which he could have done and then handed off to another producer, but both signing and producing their debut album, was he said Mm -hmm. something to the effect of, I had to let the world see this genius, Eddie Van Halen. Mm -hmm. Like He can't go unknown. He's too good. How much did that sort of attitude and that drive put Ted in the position because you know we're friends so I call him Ted put Mr. (laughs) Templeton in the position to produce it and is that what you think led him to placing eruption on the album so the thing about eruption that's really interesting is that Eruption was one of the last things that was recorded for Van Halen 1, and it actually was something that Ted had no plan to put on the record. It was a guitar solo that Eddie Van Halen played live, in generally in that same form that it's on the record. It, he probably varied it from night to night, but that was they had sort of a, a rough form that he would basically fill in the blanks as he went along. The story that Ted told me is that he was in the studio one of the last they were recording Van Halen's debut record and they were going to work on one last song to put on the record and he heard this thing he heard this guitar solo coming out of the studio he was in the in the kind of in the back and the and eddie was out in the big room where they would have the microphones to record the the amplifiers the guitars he was standing there and he was playing he came in and he goes what what is this what is this and he and uh eddie van halen told him oh it's just something i play live it's my solo and he goes well we want to rec- we got to record it and he goes well what you want to record it he goes, yeah, we're going to record it right now. He goes, okay. And so he went into the control room and they recorded it. Uh, and I think once that Ted heard that solo, it was a no. I mean, he did told me he didn't think even a second that it wasn't going to be on the record. He was like, we're going to, we're going to put this on the record. There's no doubt. And so what your point about him wanted to highlight Eddie's guitar abilities, I, you know, there was no master plan for, before that to say, we need a showcase for Eddie. I mean, the album was meant to be the showcase for Eddie, but it right. was never going to be like a, a, a instrumental Eddie playing guitar. But he said when you heard that, it was an instantaneous thing where we're going to put it on the record. We're doing it. And so they, rec- they recorded it, and it ended up, uh, of course, being now you know, almost unanimously known around the world as the greatest you know, individual guitar solo ever done by anybody. And so it's, it is to... <laughs> And you hear other guitarists talk about it, whether it's um, or Neil Schoen or Steve Lukather. Or, I mean, the list goes on and on of people who are like, I didn't even know what he was doing. Like, let sure. alone was it absolutely amazing to listen to. 
but you couldn't, you, you didn't, you weren't even sure it was a guitar. That's how revolutionary right. it was. Well, and that, that the thing that, that uh, Ted talked about, which was so amazing to Ted, was that, that Eddie seemed surprised that he'd want to put it on the record. He was kind of like, like what, like what, like what, what, <laughs> like what do you want to do? He was like, well, of course we're going to put it on the record. And he's like, you know, he couldn't quite, he couldn't quite Ted wrap his head around the fact that that Eddie didn't see the merit in putting it in. But that gets back to, I think Eddie's personality, where Eddie was a guy who was who was certainly um, not one who sought out the spotlight and never thought like, well, of course we need to have a a solo that's all about me on the record. It was not, that was not his personality. And so when Ted wanted to do it, Eddie was game, but he certainly wasn't going to say, Hey, what, you know, when are we putting my solo on the record? There was a good, a great story when they toured with journey. Their first tour was journey and, and Montrose and Van Halen and Neil Schoen couldn't figure out what was happening. And he would get there early and watch Van Halen set, which you have to understand, Journey's a big group. I think they just put out maybe the Infinity album or something like that, that maybe the one they were touring for. And Sean yep. was a terrific guitarist, and he played for Santana. And Van Halen was generally treated like dirt on that tour. Mm-hmm. No sound checks. They get a 30-minute set. And here's Neil Schoen, the uh, guitarist for the headlining act, showing up early. And at one point, he tells Ronnie Montrose, I'm glad you have to follow that, and I don't. Yeah, and I think that's part of the thing that ended up. It's you know Neil Sean and and Eddie ended up becoming friends, and that wasn't always the usual reaction. Neil liked Eddie and sort of saw the talent and wanted to kind of congratulate Eddie for it and be supportive of it. Where a lot of other guys were not so nice to Eddie. So I right. think Ronnie Montrose was probably okay to Ed in part because Ted and Ronnie had worked together for years. I'm sure um, there was that that bridge too between Ed and Eddie Van Halen and Ronnie Montrose. But yeah, a lot of these bigger groups, Aerosmith, Deep Purple, you know, the guitar players all snubbed Eddie because he was seen as such a threat. They just thought he was, you know, this, this, this basically they were intimidated by him. So, you know, to me that was really interesting to, to, uh, to think about that, but yeah, you're right. Okay. True. We'll do a true and false again, please. You really got me the greatest cover version of any song of all time. I don't know if it's the greatest cover version of any song of all time. I mean, it's like, it's, I'll tell you one thing. It definitely, you know, blows away the Kings version as far as I'm concerned. And uh, that might be anathema to some people, but there's no, I mean, you know, one of the things that's really a, a good testament to how good a cover song is when it's better than the original. When you think that song's better than the original. And I, to me, there's no, there's not even a competition. It's so it's, it, you know, to be, to be able to record a version of a Kinks song, the Kinks being such an amazing group, that's so much better. That's a testament right there. Well, and Ray Davies would introduce the song in concert as "This is our Van Halen song." <laughs> there you go. That gives you an idea. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure they didn't mind. The, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly who had the writing credit for uh, on the Ray Davies, if anyone else did, but I'm sure he didn't mind the uh, the publishing money that came from from uh, ten plus million copies of the record. Not to mention all the radio plays as well. Ray Davies, for those of you who don't know, was the lead singer of the Kinks, and the Kinks are probably, in my view, the most underrated band of all time. Brilliant mm-hmm. sound and songs. Uh, Van Halen came out, and they went on these tours, but is it an accurate statement to say they weren't necessarily an overnight success story? They didn't just explode onto the scene, like maybe a la Whitney Houston or something like that, in other words. It took a while for the the album itself to gain some momentum. 
Yeah, I mean, they definitely had a slow a slow burn. I think the one thing that that you see when you look at the way their their tour went it was that they initially started out playing these pretty small um, theaters with Journey and Ronnie Montrose. They were playing you know twelve hundred, two thousand people theaters at the most. Um, they would be playing in you know a place like you know a place like um, would be a, a classic place they might have played. They would have played like uh, the Masonic Temple in Detroit. They would have played these types of old vaudeville halls to uh, smaller crowds. But over time, as the record, as you really got me, started to gain some momentum, they started to get um, some some uh, more notoriety. Eventually, they go to Europe. So they, in the spring, you know, March through April, they are touring in the U.S. playing with Journey of Montrose, and they end up getting on this Black Sabbath tour. And that really was a big a big deal for those guys to go over to Europe and open for Black Sabbath in England and mm-hmm. all over the Scotland and the and the UK. But you know, it, they don't really become a stadium act until the fall. So by that point, they had about three singles out, and the album had sold a million copies, and they'd been around the world touring. And so that's and you know they had been, the album had been out for six or eight months. So it wasn't like again the album like you're, you're saying like the album came out and suddenly their first single goes to number one and they're immediately sure. top of the charts. It wasn't like that. Um, but at that point they were upstaging groups like black Sabbath and Boston and other people, uh, when they were playing Anaheim stadium and Oakland Coliseum and these other places where they were maybe third down or second down on the bill. Um, the second group to perform, they were, they were, uh, the Texas jam, they were blowing the other acts away. They were people leaving going, wow, that was the, you know, Van Halen. They were incredible. They were, you know, you know, but as I mentioned in, in Van Halen Rising, I mean, a, a, a group like Head East didn't have much of a chance up against Van Halen. I mean, <laughs> just, they didn't have a chance. I mean, they just, they weren't the same type of bands. They just weren't, you know, those bands like that, Boston and Head East, they were radio bands. They weren't bands that were live acts. Um, and, and so Ozzy a band Osborne. like Van Halen, which was so geared, geared to the live performance, just, just absolutely wiped the floor with those bands. Forgive me, but... Ozzy Osbourne himself said that Van Halen just blew us off the stage every night, that Sabbath was clearly coming to the end, and these were the new guys. Now, um, his guitarist, uh, Tony Iommi, said that it wasn't true, but a lot of folks who have written about that particular tour said that the energy that these young guys brought to the stage was just unparalleled. Yeah, you know, I think if you talk to most people who saw that tour, who are around there, there are people and you see them on Facebook and Twitter. They'll talk to you about it. I mean, most people will, you know, will either say like Sabbath held their own against Van Halen or they'll say at best, you know, that, or, you know, that'd be the best case scenario that Sabbath held their own. There's very few people who would, I've never, I very rarely encounter people who be like, uh, Sabbath destroyed Van Halen or there was no, you know, there was no competition. It was either, it was an even, you know, people walking with feeling pretty even about it or it was like, wow, this group just absolutely, um, exceeded all my expectations. I never saw an opening act like this before. And I had people tell me that they'd never seen an opening act like that before. But, you know, the truth of the matter was they were on the same label or Warner Brothers. And so, you know, I don't know exactly what the politics of how that worked on the tour, but I suspect that the people who were managing the tour from from Warner Brothers Records pushed the Sabbath people to give Van Halen more leeway. They they played longer. They did things. They let the the Van Halen, uh, they let Van, uh, Van Halen do things like, uh, Late Alex's drumsticks got lit on fire, and these types of things. And when he did his drum solo in Tiki Torch Fluids, there were there were things that allowed them to put on the show. If that makes sense, that 
to be honest with you, that Van Halen would never allowed when they had opening acts later. They never allowed, <laughs> never, never allowed. So, you know, I think that was part of what Van Halen had going for them was that they had the big label of Warner Brothers behind them saying, okay, you know what? It's time to pass the torch. You know, Sabbath, you're going to have to, you're basically going to have to share share the stage with these guys and let them have a chance. And so that's the way it worked out great for those guys. Again, that's not to say they didn't put on great shows or didn't actually uh, exceed Sabbath's performance, but you could imagine if you were uh, with another band in another situation on a different, you know, on a different label and there's different dynamics politically, you probably wouldn't have been able to get away with the stuff they got away with in terms of just being able to put on their show. And there was, you know, there's footage on YouTube. I would highly recommend people seek out uh, the Fresno 1978 Van Halen footage, which is September 1978, and you can see Van Halen's performance, uh, what they were like, and how great they were, and what Black Sabbath was up against. From amazingly enough, someone had snuck a 16 millimeter movie movie camera into a Van Halen concert and filmed about 20 minutes of this Van Halen concert, and it gives you really a ringside seat of what we what was going on with Van Halen at the time. Just incredible. It's astounding. Uh, we are talking with. Professor Greg Renoff, who wrote this terrific book that captures Van Halen's early years in the music scene in general, and it's called Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. You can look up on all the usual sources. I recommend uh, checking the book out on Goodreads. It's got some really nice quotes that are pulled from it and give you a flavor of what Professor Renoff uh, documented we have just a few more minutes left. We don't want to keep you too long. Um, I'm on uh, question seven of the 804 questions that I wrote out ahead of time. <laughs> Is there, in your opinion, a more underrated rhythm section than Michael Anthony and Alex Van Halen? It's. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to think of one. It really is hard to think of one. I mean, again, that's part of the that's part of the uh, challenges of being the in a group with David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. I mean, there's just no thing else I can say. I mean, that's one of the, the, the things is that, you know, there are, of course, drummers I can think of, like Don Bonham, for example, who you're in a band with Robert Plant and with Jimmy Page, but yet people still recognize your drumming talents because you're so uh, exemplary. But yeah, the, you mean Alex and Michael Anthony were great, and they are great, and they absolutely, I think, I don't know, seated a lot of the spotlight to their brother, to you know, Alex to his brother and Eddie to, uh, you know, excuse me, Mike to the, to Dave and, and Eddie. And I think that's part of what was, what was, uh, was great about Van Halen is that stuff was so solid that it allowed Eddie, the drums and the bass, allowed Eddie to really do all the incredible guitar gymnastics and the magic. We all appreciated him as a soloist and it kind of went unnoticed. It's just, you know, it's like great lighting on a, on a movie or something like that. You don't think about it, but that's what makes the performance magical great set and these types of things and those guys really set the stage ready to do his stuff um and the other thing too is that you know that is definitely true is that eddie and alex were had been playing together for so long i think that was the thing that when they played live if they ever wanted to stretch out a song or something like that out they had just an intuitive connection from playing since they were little kids together you know not all bands have that where they right. have a drummer that's new or something like that where there's you're not going to be the same sort of almost esp relationship and that was definitely something that eddie and alex had and so that was going to make the, this, the performance so much better, too. But, you know, look, you can say whatever you want. I mean, when you're, you're playing with the best guitar player of an era, it's going to be pretty hard to, uh, to be the, something that stands out, you know? And Alex seems like he's handled the superstardom of his younger little brother 
pretty darn well, all things considered. I mean, you know, he doesn't come off as bitter in the very few interviews that he's done. And, he, you know, he goes on and on about how, you know, as, as is well known to anyone who's, who's a Van Halen fan, that Eddie started playing drums, Alex started playing guitar. When Eddie was out with the paper route to pay for the drums, Alex would play them. Alex could play Wipeout. Eddie couldn't. So they switched instruments. Right. And Alex seems to have handled the whole, you know what, I'm really, really, really good at what I do, and my peers respect me, but my little brother completely changed an entire instrument and how it's sounded and how it's constructed and how it's played. And mm-hmm. I think that's a testament to him. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing that, that plays out here is that, that like his brother, you know, neither of those guys really liked liked the media that much. I mean, I think that's the thing too. That's like I I feel certain that Alex Van Halen could have done a lot more drum magazine interviews than he sure. ever did, and he just doesn't. He just doesn't. You know, I don't think I don't think he. You know, I think it worked out well from the standpoint that I don't think he was actually seeking it anyway. If that makes sense. You know, he, he, he was perfectly happy to, I think, see the spotlight to his brother um, in terms of the, as the, you know, musical virtuoso of the group. But I, I also think he, he could have done more if he wanted to, if that makes sense. I mean, it was, it was like, I'm sure he was turning down interviews, not infrequently, because if you see how many drum magazine interviews he's done over the years, it hasn't been that many. I mean, it's just no, you know, it's not. one every two or three years he does one, you know, where, you know, when you're in a group as big as Van Halen, obviously... There are plenty of magazines that would have wanted to interview you more frequently. And everything I have ever read about Michael Anthony starts out with, he's the nicest guy in music. Like everyone praises him from just being a guy who, you know, is certainly very talented, probably fair to say underrated as a player, but certainly uh, much praised as a singer. He has this gorgeous voice. Which, you know, quite frankly, people miss these days. It's pretty clear. Even though I'm a huge Wolfgang Van Halen fan as it, when it comes to Chops. I mean, watching him play on some of their songs live, it's it's pretty sure. ridiculous. But but the internal dynamic of four people like that, was it early on that there start to, started to be kind of fractures? Or did it just something that developed over time? Well, you know, my, there's that famous line by David Lee Roth that says, like, you know, when did the when did the starts the when did the tension start from the very first day I joined the group, which is probably is probably true, <laughs> uh, you know. But I think in, in terms of the in terms of the overt tension that splits Van Halen, I think that's what you're trying to get at. I think, you know, for me, as looking at this over the course of the last few decades, as their their whole evolution as a group, I mean, definitely by the time that 1984. 1983-1984 rolled around. There were certainly problems within the group with substances and with egos. And the 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 thing for sure was a big a big part and parcel of this whole thing was by 1984. Let's talk about the ego thing. Is that David Lee Roth had become um, a much bigger star than he had ever been before. He sort of reached his peak his peak fame. And when he looked around and he saw a lot of his peers, everyone from someone like Madonna to Prince to Cindy Lauper to go even go down the line, these people who are all becoming interested in doing movies to one, to one degree or another. We're talking about that reading scripts. I mean, Tina Turner was doing movies. All these people were mm-hmm. doing movies. 
Debbie Carter became a no-brainer for Dave to want to do that. And that was something that was he tried to drag the uh, brothers along into as a as a band venture, and that was just a non-starter for them for the most part. They were not interested in doing that. Uh, and the other the other reality was, I mean, I think Eddie Van Halen has been honest about that. I mean, certainly his substance abuse was 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 certainly getting worse at the time. I think he ended up going to going to rehab around 1986 or 87 for the first time. Uh, and so Alex, I think, also ends up you know getting sober somewhat later in the mm-hmm. 80s. But there That's was right. you know, there was definitely that situation too, where the brothers had a had a pretty significant um, their own struggles with that, which probably did not help. Um, interband relations, people getting along, and so when all that stuff kind of came together with in the in the mix, there um, it just all ended up coming to a a grinding halt around 1980, 85 or so. Unfortunately, and you know, I think at the end of the day, it was sort of a standoff where who was going to blink first, and Roth refused to blink around this movie, and uh, that was the end of that. That was that was the uh, the kind of thing that ended like kill killed the band. Uh, but of course, I think the other stuff that was all going on, as I've kind of alluded to, probably was the personalities and the drug addictions and the alcohol stuff was all going to be make it more difficult for those conversations to happen in a way that were going to be uh, destructive to the band. And yeah, it's fair, unfortunate. Fair to say that MTV was both a blessing and a curse to the band, particularly Roth. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that even before. I shouldn't say before, but even before Jump, I mean, the Pretty Woman video became a, <laughs> a an important so an important landmark for those guys in some sort of ways because I think I think you had a guy who was working with the band Pete Angelus mm-hmm. who was who was had a film school experience and enjoyed do and, and had the ability to, to help those guys make videos. The Pretty Woman video was sort of just the starting point of that sort of that sort of interest in trying to taking the, the visual side of Van Halen. And once they got, they had the, uh, the album 1984 blow up so big and they could make these videos, it certainly, it certainly changed Ross way of looking at himself as a entertainer for sure. And, you know, it was of course the golden age of music video. But as I said, I mean, the thing that people have sort of forgotten is if you look at Rolling Stone magazine, in 1985, and you read through, I mean, everyone was trying to make a movie uh, everyone, John Cougar Mellencamp was trying to make a movie. You go down the line of all these different Pete Townsend made a movie. All these, everyone was making a movie. And so what Roth wanted to do was not so unusual or sort of, you know, Roth is crazy for wanting to make a movie. It was just something that the brothers had no interest in. Um, I think in part because they probably saw it as Roth, it was a vehicle for Roth. I mean, let's face it, uh, Eddie Van Halen's not Rick, Spring- Rick Springfield. He's not going to like, you know, he's not going to make a movie. I mean, it's just not his thing. And so he's not going to want to star in a movie. And so clearly the only person who really would want to be the star in the movie would be Roth. And so that's the other thing that was going on there, too, is that they didn't want to make this movie with Roth. They didn't want to do a movie project. And Roth just refused to step off that 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 uh, position. He just, you know, he wouldn't. You know, I, I don't, who knows what would have happened. I mean, I could kind of imagine an alternate universe if Roth had said, okay, I'm not going to make my movie, then maybe they could have made an album gone on tour. I'm, I'm guessing that probably could have happened. I don't know for sure, but it seems like that's plausible at least. But it was, you know, it was it the whole, the solo record with the solo videos right. and then on top of the movie, which all seemed to be, I'm sure from the perspective of the brothers, Roth is using us as a platform to extend his own fame where on the flip side of that, I'm 
pretty confident that Ross saw this as, I am giving you guys a break right now where we can regroup. I can spend the first few months of January doing my thing, and we can regroup and go on the road later in 1985, hopefully have a record out, where it's just sort of a – it's giving – it's giving you guys breathing room and it's keeping the band's name out there. In other words, right. Those guys didn't have to go out on the road in, in January, like they had done all those other years because Dave was out doing his thing, but you know, it's all, it's all water under the bridge. And the truth of the matter is the, the unfortunately the, the relationships were pretty, pretty corroded at that point, And it was going to be, no matter what happened, even if, if Dave came off his movie, I, it's kind of hard to imagine that um, it would have lasted much longer, maybe one more record, even if it could have done that, but they were, uh, yeah, just unfortunately, it just had really come to the end. And there was a famous kind of, which I've read about, policy where where the members of Van Halen didn't want the other members of Van Halen doing things outside the band, which 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 Eddie cited in multiple interviews when Quincy Jones called him to play the guitar solo on the song "Beat It" for the Thriller album. He said in multiple interviews, well, I did it because I didn't think anyone would ever know that I played on this black kid's record. Like, right. who's going to know? Yeah, that- right. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, like, that's the whole... <laughs> I, 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 there's all sorts of things I could say about that. I mean, it's interesting because the first thing that, that Ed did was on the Nicolette Larson record right. that Ted Templeman produced where he, he was not credited. So the original pressings of the, and probably all the pressings now, of the whether you buy the CD today or or buy a, an album from 1978, if you pull out the Nicolette Larson record, it says, uh, can't get away from you, guitar solo by question mark, because Ed didn't want to be credited <laughs> because the band members didn't want him being credited. You know, but along the line, there was the, the Starfleet project where that, oh, that yeah. came out. Now, the, supposedly about the Starfleet project was that Ed didn't think that was going to come out, and then Brian May approached him and said, I want to put this out, and Brian May uh, was a friend of Ed, so Ed didn't want to say, well... I'm not going to let you put it out. He was just like, okay, fine. And it came out. But yes, there were, there were a number of instances where that policy seems to be uh, applied differently depending on how <laughs> things went with the band. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, yeah, I just, I think that's probably my gut feeling is probably that's part of the double standard that, that irked Roth where he thought, I'm not singing other people's records. I haven't done anything like that. Uh, and now I want to do my solo, a solo EP, a four song of covers, which, you know, there's no original material. I'm not writing any lyrics that would have gone for a Van Halen record. I'm not doing anything that would take away from Van Halen. And there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of, I'm, I'm sure from Ross perspective, a lot of feeling of like, why can't you guys just let me do this thing that I want to do? Um, you know, I didn't complain about Michael Jackson. I didn't, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, which, whatever. which kept, Ego. which kept 1984 from being the number one album in the country, by right. the way. Ironically, right, right. Uh, Eddie Trunk, who uh, is a very, very, very popular uh, music commentator, has a show and it's on YouTube and really does a terrific job uh, analyzing rock music in recent history, was asked about Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. And someone asked him, you know, I think the question was something along the lines of, when are we going to get an American Led Zeppelin? And his answer was, we've already had it, and it's Van Halen. How close do you find yourself in agreement with that opinion? Well, you know, I, I, it's, the thing about 
Led Zeppelin is that other than the couple of reunions they did, whether it was Live Aid and they did the the anniversary show, uh, yeah, for Atlantic five, Records, whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and then they did the show in the last with the one last reunion they did. They they split up when the original band lost a member and they split up. I know it was a different situation with Van Halen, but the thing is that that Van Halen sort of <laughs> they ran the gamut of all these different lineups and everything. I mean, I think, I think for me, I look like groups at the Beatles and Led Zeppelin a, a little bit differently because there were the original core members. There was their peak period when they were together, they split. And then it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it pains me as a Van Halen fan to say that, but I don't even mean like, I don't even mean something like a, an album that, you know, you can say, well, I don't like X Van Halen record or it was just the, the it, it just wasn't if you look at the original if you want to think the original six years of Van Halen to me I would stack that up against Led Zeppelin the, meaning the six albums that they put out from 78 to 84 I would stack those records next to the Led Zeppelin catalog or the Doors catalog or even the Beatles catalog to me or the early of, the early 70s late 60s with the Stones they have that great sure period. sure that should, those albums are, you know in terms of their their quality and how great the songs were and how good the musicianship was and how popular they were and the frenzy they caused in a live act. Sure. But, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, even like a group like Deep Purple, which has had all these permutations and has gone all this time. It sort of, it sort of takes the wind out of the sails. I mean, I don't know for me as a, as a fan, when you want to say, look, you can't just expect everything is going to be exactly the same with the group forever, but for whatever, you know, the Beatles split up, Led Zeppelin split up the, Albums that they made together with their original members that are that's the that's what you judge them by. And so when you kind of look at all these different eras, it's sort of hard for me to imagine that Led Zeppelin and um, Van Halen in the same category. But I do understand Trunk's point. He's like that was the they were the great American hard rock band. I mean, I mean the flip side of that, you could say, what about Aerosmith? I mean, sure. Aerosmith has had has had some members leave for different albums, but for the most part, you know, except for that part in the late um, late seventies, early eighties, they basically had the same. Uh, of course, today was a little different with Kobe Kramer, but they've had the same lineup. And you kind of can look at them. I mean, for me, it's a lot easier to make the case for someone like Aerosmith to kind of go. They had that career of the, the original core members, and they had this this uh, kind of kind of grab that mantle. But you know, the other thing, the truth of the matter is, there's been a lot of uneven Aerosmith records, and there really wasn't. I mean, you look at Zeppelin and the, and the Doors for me, and the Beatles, and you know, you can sort of point to a certain record or certain songs when I like Rush, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, just it's I don't know it's, it's to me it's I, I don't think the, the comparison holds up for me but of course I respect Eddie's opinion tremendously he's uh, you know he knows his stuff and he's a, he's the the best the best uh, advocate going anywhere in the world for for hard the music I love so more power to him I that's I agree a thousand percent one other event I want to ask you about then I'll have one final question is the marriage of Eddie Van Halen to Valerie Bertinelli what impact did that have on the band if any because she seems like such a fun personality and you know comes off Mm -hmm. so great and obviously here in indianapolis we're a little partial to her because her tv show one day at a time was uh based here and uh did she inspire any of the songs or or is there any way that you could say she influenced kind of how eddie wrote you know i don't know the i mean i think well, let me start with the the, the the thing that I'd always heard people speculating is that Roth did Big Bad Bella Sweet William Now as his sort of 
sort of like jabbing the ribs to Eddie Van Halen for getting married. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what people have speculated, um, or you know that he was he was uh, he was trying to uh, lampoon it in some sort of lighthearted way. I'm not sure if Eddie got the joke or if it was had anything to do with that. But if mm. you listen to the lyrics and you think about what the you know, sort of the guy who goes from being a, 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 a bachelor rock star to a more domesticated life, it's sort of it's sort of interesting to think about that. Um, in terms of the music she inspired, I mean, I think she, her, in her book, she's talked about this, and I've seen interviews actually with them together done in the, in the, uh, in the 80s where you know, she was definitely interested in trying to get him to stretch himself, particularly on, on keyboards. You know, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think, you know, she, uh, I don't think she was the one who got Eddie to write Jump, but I think she was somebody probably who was able to say you have talent in this area. You shouldn't, even if the other guys don't like the keyboard songs, you should, you should write this music. You should do this. You, you, you like this stuff. You should do it. And I think, um, as a wife, I think that was probably as a partner to him. I think that was probably an important thing for him to stretch out and do this different stuff. Uh, there's, there's, I think no doubt that there was, um, let's just say, a tepid reaction to a lot of the keyboard stuff that Eddie Van Halen came up with for the jump. Sure. Uh, all wait songs. These songs were initially not embraced by, um, David Lee Roth and Ted Templeman were, neither of them were super enthused at the beginning. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure that Alex was, was like super, super enthusiastic about it either. I mean, I don't know for sure. It's just my speculation. He may have been, he may have loved it as much as Eddie did, but I imagine it's part of, it's just, you know, it's different, definitely a different, musical landscape. But, um, I, you know, I think in what I know about from what Valerie's written in the interviews I've seen when they were sitting together, you could see her sort of encouraging a guy who maybe felt a little bit insecure about that, that aspect of his musical palette to be like, you know, you, you know, you've been writing a lot of stuff on keyboards, you know, and him kind of like nodding and going, yeah, you know, I have been and kind of encouraging him, which is, you know, which is a big credit to her and, uh, something that, uh, we should, I think, I think applaud that she was, she was, you know, trying to, to basically boost him up in a situation where he probably felt like uh, the people I most trust musically don't think this is a good idea or don't like this stuff. And she was trying to say, you, but you like it, you know, you should keep doing it. Well, and anyone who's read five minutes about Eddie Van Halen knows that he was initially trained as a, as a classical pianist and, and won several good piano competitions in his youth. So that was certainly in his blood, for sure, um, along with just general music in the family, as as both he and Alex have talked about many times. So uh, Greg Granoff has uh, written a Ph.D. dissertation, which he had to defend. So I did. I did have to defend it. It's true. I'm laughing. I'd forgotten I had to defend it. But yes, you're right. I did have to defend it. <laughs> so so take just a few seconds. And defend this dissert, this dissertation statement. How a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. No, oh, that's easy. That's easy. Um, when Van Halen got their record deal and Van Halen came on the scene, there was there were nobody in the industry was saying, "Oh yeah, a hard rock band from California with two Dutch brothers, a uh, flamboyant." lead singer who doesn't really sing all that well uh, is going to come out and sell two million records and be the big success story in rock for the whole year. Uh, everyone would have said the jam, the poli- you know, 
the uh, Blondie, the Ramones, these are the groups that are going to sell two million copies, and those groups didn't. And at the time when Van Halen broke through in 1978, it really was in the rock me- in the rock media among mock journalism. Uh, the sense that Van Halen was kind of a joke. If you read the early reviews, and even after Van Halen was selling, the reviews are pretty much mocking Van Halen as being dinosaurs and being uh, a rehash. There's just there's Rolling nothing Stone, new here. Rolling and Stone said good. they'd be fat, indulgent, and out of work and a year right, or right, something right, like right, that. right. That's the classic one. Like these guys are going to be fat, disgusting, and out of you know whatever, rich <laughs> in like three years. And like the guys said, basically, I was right about you know. I'm right about the rich, but wrong about the fat and out of shape or something like that. <laughs> but um, it's funny. But, you know, um, you know, so when Van Halen did that, they sort of, for me, they sort of kept hard rock afloat and, and kept people interested in that type of music. And they're not the only, you know, hard rock group uh, going in 1979. But if you think about the, the American groups, particularly like Aerosmith, they're sort of they're sort of done and Really, uh, the new wave of British heavy metal is much more of a UK phenomenon. Def Leppard and these groups don't break in the States until later. And, you know, Van Halen was was going during a time where, you know, the cars were, you know, were were big. The police, these other these other groups had a different different uh, musical pro- approach. So for me, yeah, they, they came around at exactly the right time and really were so sensational with the guitar playing and the, the, the Ross vocals and the whole presentation live and how great the record was that that really made people recognize that yeah this this genre pop metal hard rock whatever you want to call it commercial heavy metal is valuable and of course what ends up happening by the early 80s is that you know everyone is imitating van halen who's in in the hard rock scene that type of um coming out of la all these bands are imitating them and uh it becomes a big a big uh a big boon for mtv of course you know but that's the that's how I would defend it. A plus. Okay. <laughs> good. good. Hey, what a relief. I can't. I can't. I can't go through it again. That's the, that's the second and last time I'll defend a dissertation. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We've been talking with Professor Greg Renoff, who wrote this fascinating book called Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. If you're a fan of Van Halen, a fan of music, a fan of the time period, or all three, please pick up his book. You will not be able to put it down. It is a both a tribute and a chronicling, and it's also a time warp. Professor Renoff, we cannot thank you enough for your time. I know you stayed a little extra with us, and, and we're very, very grateful. Thank you so much. No worries. appreciated the time, and I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you, and good luck with your new book on Ted Templeman, and we would certainly love to have you back to talk about that if if your schedule allows. I would be happy to come back on. Thanks so much, and uh, enjoy your evening. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. 
That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com. Strategies.com.